From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marchick. In Philadelphia, warned of plots to kill him, Lincoln declared he would rather be assassinated than see a single star removed from the American flag. Two days later, he reluctantly canceled plans for a grand arrival in Washington and slipped into the Capitol by train at dawn, wrapped in a shawl and protected by two armed guards. Lincoln's journey to Washington represented just 30 seconds of Ken Burns' nearly 12-hour Civil War documentary. But that journey was the main focus of our guest's new 624-page book. Today on Transition Lab, we're thrilled to have Professor, author, and historian Ted Widmer. Professor Widmer is a professor of history at Macaulay Honors College in New York and has written several books on the American presidency. He has a wonderful new book called Lincoln on the Verge, which traces Lincoln's momentous 13-day journey to Washington and how that journey, really an odyssey, shaped both his presidency and the nation. Ted, thanks for joining us. Dave, delighted to be here. Now, I first saw your name when you wrote a series for the New York Times called Disunion, which is on the anniversary of the Civil War. What was that series about, and how did you get involved in that? That is actually the series that gave birth to this book. Uh, I, I was involved with some younger historians and some editors at the New York Times who were really very welcoming. They were trying to expand what the online part of the Times was. They came to me and to a couple other historians and said, we'd like to run some Civil War posts for a few months. What happened on this day 150 years ago? And so I started writing about what Lincoln was doing every day 150 years ago. And I got into this story of the train trip in February 2010. And it just overwhelmed me. I, I thought it was fascinating, both because Lincoln is changing a lot on these 13 days. The country is changing a lot. He goes a really long way out of his way through all these cities you wouldn't think he would be going through on his way to Washington. And then he's nearly killed at the end. So it, it had a lot of inherent drama. And I thought this this will make a great book. Well, let me ask you a question. So there are 15,000 plus books on Lincoln. Why did we need another book on Lincoln? Well, this train trip is not unknown, but I felt that we could know it more deeply. And one way I, I believe that I helped to do that is I, I did a ton of research. There's a wonderful website called Chronicling America. It has a lot of newspapers from small towns. And so you can read in one, sitting at one desk on your laptop, you can read hundreds of different newspapers, whereas you would have to go to every small town to do that uh, up until pretty recently. So I think I did some new research. I hesitate to say that because there are a lot of Lincoln historians, as, as you know, and many of them might have read those things too. But I, I think I was able to consolidate it in a pretty new way. And I, I put women in the story more than they usually are. I, I believe Lincoln's life was saved by two women, one who discovered the plot against him and another who was a kind of spy who infiltrated the people who wanted to kill him and, and told Lincoln about it. So there's a lot of drama in these 13 days. Yeah, it's a wonderful book and you did a great job and I'm glad you wrote it. So maybe just set the stage for this period, which maybe was something close to a transition. So 1860, he gets elected. 
And within days, the South, Southern states start, start seceding. So what else was going on in the country at this moment? Well, it's a terrible transition. And I, I, I think your interest in transitions is really important because we are so vulnerable uh, at, at any transition, but especially in a bad transition. And the founders didn't really tell us how to do a transition very well. And Lincoln's transition showed just how how fragile our country can be at times. Uh, he's, he's elected on November 6th, 1860, and he has a very small share of the vote. He has only 39.8%, so not even 40%. It's the second smallest uh, plurality ever in our history. And then the South just goes ballistic. They, they start threatening to secede, and then they begin to actually secede. South Carolina is the first state to secede in, in December, and then six other states secede. So he's way out there in Illinois, and he can't really control anything that's happening back in Washington. He certainly can't control anything in the southern states that have seceded. So it's not clear what he is even the president of. And it's a long wait from November 6th to March 4th is when inaugurals were in the 19th century. So he's got all of these headaches. He's got to put together a cabinet and his coalition is not that coherent. It's there are people inside his coalition who don't like each other. Even certain states like Pennsylvania are very divided. There are different factions. They both want to be in Lincoln's cabinet. He's got to coordinate with um, people like William Seward, who he's just defeated for the nomination, but now is a new ally. And it's just all very dicey. He hasn't given a speech all, all year, basically. And then he's got to plan this train trip, a train trip of almost 2,000 miles. But as it turned out, the train trip was his deliverance from a lot of his problems because he found that being on the road on this train, he was able to speak a lot to the people and alleviate their concerns and also give messages to Southerners saying, don't worry, I, I want to be a good president for you also. And even though those first seven states went out and wouldn't come back in, he kept the border states in the country long enough to get to Washington. And that was actually a huge achievement. And what was the Buchanan administration doing at this point? Um, was there any coordination with Buchanan? Very little. Um, Buchanan is is a kind of a disaster right at this time. He has not been a very good president anyway. He's uh, a northerner. He's from Pennsylvania, but He's completely allied with the Deep South. I mean, there are factions within the South, too, and he's always with the parts of the South that are the most pro-slavery. As the secession crisis approaches with Lincoln's election and then the months after, Buchanan falls apart. Um, He has pretty bad cabinet officers. They start resigning. The the most pro-Southern ones start resigning it turns out they've been guilty of a lot of corruption, also of um, embezzling funds or of secretly leaking U.S. government plans to the southern states that are about to secede or have seceded. They're really a pretty rotten bunch. And then Buchanan can't even make up his mind. He he says vaguely pro-Northern things when Northerners are in the room, and he says very pro-Southern th- things when Southerners are in the room. And he basically loses the confidence of everyone. So 
in addition to all of his other problems, Lincoln has to deal with the fact that the actual president is, is falling apart. Mm. So all hell's breaking loose, and Lincoln decides to take a train trip. But it wasn't just a trip directly to Washington. The book opens with a, a map inside the cover on the end papers, and you, you can see right away, it just goes so far out of its way. It goes all through the Midwest and not in a straight line through the Midwest either. And then veers up into upstate New York and then comes down through New York City and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, then shoots out into central Pennsylvania before doubling back. And I mean, the first reason for that is it felt dangerous to go through the southern states, uh, which if to go from Springfield to Washington directly, you would have to go through Virginia. And he didn't feel like that was a great idea. And he, he didn't feel like going through Kentucky was a great idea either, even though he's born in Kentucky. But it's just, you know, it doesn't feel safe. It, it feels unsafe politically because those places are wrestling with whether or not to, to secede. And it, it feels unsafe to, to his person because there are just so many public threats of violence from Southerners to him. But then as he goes on this winding route, it turns out to be pretty fortunate that he he chooses that route. And I, I talk a lot about how different every state was. The, the South isn't all one place and the North isn't either. And even within a state, you get a lot of differences in Illinois and Indiana and Ohio, big differences between the Southern part of the state and the Northern part of the state. And as you might expect, the Southern parts are much more sympathetic to the South. And Lincoln shrewdly goes into some southern parts of midwestern states. So Cincinnati is in southern Ohio. It's right on the Ohio River, which is the boundary between the north and the south. And he has a really good visit in Cincinnati. He has a lot of friends there. He speaks to Kentuckians in a really um, compelling way about how much he respects them. And those speeches are heard. They're printed in the papers and read by Southerners, and I think they do a lot of good, actually. Um, he's also going through state capitals, and that's important because he needs the support of every governor and legislature. Presidents had much less power then, and if there is to be a war, which we all know there was, he's going to need help from the governors to raise troops. One of the big changes of the Civil War is by the end of the war, the, the federal government is is doing that because it's much more effective. And so that's one of the many ways Lincoln really kind of reinvents the presidency. Well, there were several interesting things about the train trip. One is that he really seems to have found his voice. As you mentioned, he really didn't give speeches during the campaign. I guess he gave one or two going back to April. Most of it was by letters and writing. But on this trip, he gave over 100 speeches. And how did those speeches and his message affect what he would do as president. Back then in 1860 and, and in the years before that and in many years after that, if you were a candidate for the presidency, you were expected to stay at home and not speak. So he does speak in the beginning of 1860, you're right, but then he gets the nomination in May and he just clamps up. He stops speaking. There's one awkward moment in August where he sort of dragged out in public and forced to say a few words, and they're not very interesting words. He basically just says, I don't want to give a speech, but technically it was a speech. And then no more speeches until he's elected in, in November. But then once he gets on the train, 
on February 11th, 1861, he gives an extraordinary speech, a farewell to his friends and neighbors in Springfield. That is a very short speech, probably only about one minute long, but it really humanized him for an audience, a national audience that did not yet know him. And he talked about his sadness in leaving his small town, how much he loves the people he's lived among, uh, how he's raised his children there and, and has buried one child there. And it's just a very moving and non-bombastic speech by a neighbor saying goodbye to his neighbor. It was telegraphed around the country, appeared in all the newspapers the next day and did him a lot of good because he'd been described as a kind of, I mean, inconsistently by some people as a sort of tyrant and by others as a buffoon, someone who lacked the education. And, and by giving that speech, he just appeared like a normal guy you would you would want to get to know. And then over the course of the 13 days, his speeches just keep getting better. He he gives a lot of them, a lot of impromptu speeches. He can't keep up. He has tried to write some speeches out ahead of time, but there are so many stops. He just has to speak impromptu. And as he gets closer to Philadelphia, he begins to talk very beautifully about his memories of reading books as a young boy about what America stands for. And it's about the brave men who fought in the American Revolution, but even more, it's about the idealism of this country and freedom. And all of it builds up into a very emotional and very persuasive argument that America is better than slavery, that America really stands for a moral principle at home and around the world. And by the end of the trip, it's only been 13 days, but he's really pretty close to the Gettysburg Address, which is going to say that again in 1863. Another thing that was extraordinary about this trip was the crowds. Can you just describe the crowds and how large they were and how those crowds affected his public support? He had absolutely huge crowds in every place he went through. Uh, in the large cities, like New York, he a quarter of a million people, which is, today would be an extremely large crowd too. And in many cities, 50,000 or 100,000 people come out. In small towns, often he'd have like two or three times the actual population of the town would be there. Everyone was coming in from the surrounding countryside to see him. People would stand by the track in farmland and just sort of, you know, for the chance to look at his face or wave to him when he, when he went by. Some of that was fear, fear about where the country was heading and fear of a, a war that was imminent. Um, a lot of it was just immense curiosity to see someone who'd gone from total non-entity or near total to the biggest celebrity in America. But he was a strange kind of a celebrity because no one really knew what he thought or even very well what he looked like. And his appearance is changing. He's growing a beard at exactly this moment. It's the most dramatic change in how a president-elect looked in any transition that I'm aware of. Um, so he's in transition as the country's in transition, and everyone's just dying of curiosity to see what he looks like. Well, at the same time, there was another famous politician taking another train trip in the South. Who was that, and what was that train trip like? Well, amazingly, Jefferson Davis, who is the president-elect of the Confederacy, begins his journey on February 11th, the same day as Lincoln's. And 
it's a, a different kind of a journey, but it, it, most of it is on a train, not all of it, but um, for many days in February of 1861, you have this very strange image of two president-elects on trains racing across great distances to get to their capital. And it seems like a kind of metaphor of sorts, these two men racing each other on, on railroads. Um, but as meandering as Lincoln's route was, Davis's was even more so because trains are not nearly as successful or direct in the South. There are fewer of them and they're not as well supplied. That was an early sign that things were going to be harder for the Southerners than they, they expected in all of their um, very ambitious speeches at the beginning of this war. Right, let's go to another extraordinary thing about the trip the people who were there. So it's just amazing. This was the event, maybe in the history of our country, just given the size of the crowds and who showed up. So you kind of document the number of past or future presidents that Lincoln met or that saw Lincoln along the way. So how many past or future presidents of the United States did he see or did they see him? I, even though I wrote the book, I, I don't think I ever counted, uh, but I would say about 10. I mean, they're just all over the place. And City after city, there's a future president. Um, he's, near the beginning of the trip, he goes by the, the tomb of William Henry Harrison. And the day before that, he meets Benjamin Harrison in Indianapolis. Um, sees Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, I, I believe a, 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 an extremely young William Howard Taft was held by his mother in the parade route in Cincinnati. Um, Millard Fillmore is in, in Buffalo. Grover Cleveland is in Buffalo. Uh, Chester A. Arthur is in Albany. They're just, you know, all throughout the route because every young person, and especially a young person who loved politics, wanted to see this fascinating, nearly unknown man who had solved the Rubik's Cube of American politics and figured out how to be elected president. So they all came out for him. Well, that's incredible. There was another person in Albany that saw Lincoln and was pretty upset in seeing Lincoln, and that was a young actor in Albany. So who was that? A very talented, very emotional young actor who's performing in Albany when Lincoln comes through, and his name is John Wilkes Booth. And he's beginning to attract attention for his loud pro-Southern opinions, although he's from a border state. He's from Maryland, a state that actually stays in the Union, although just barely. But he's pro-Southern, and he's really anti-Lincoln. And I've wondered about the intensity of his hatred of Lincoln, and it's, it's even noticed by people in 1861 as, as Lincoln comes through Albany. And I think part of it was politics. I think part of it was jealousy of this man who's also, in a sense, performing and is drawing much bigger crowds than John Wilkes Booth is. One of the things you say is that Lincoln transformed the country with these crowds, meaning he only got 39% of the vote. He only won a small number of states, but his trip helped win over the people and convert lots of people that voted against him to actually support him. I absolutely think that. I think he got off the train a much stronger president-elect than he was when he got on the train, when he was a very weak president-elect. And part of that is he shored up his own party, which is, is a pretty disorganized party. So it feels like well more than 40% of the North is behind him by the time he gets to Washington. And 
a lot of people who don't vote for Lincoln still want him to have his chance to be president. They believe in fair play. He says over and over again to people, I'm aware that my election has caused a lot of controversy, but the genius of our system is if for any reason I screw up, you can just vote me out in four years. That's the genius of American democracy. And that's impressive to people. And they form a deeper attachment to him. And a lot of people who don't vote for him want him to survive his train trip. And they want him to survive his first year and, and ultimately his his entire term as, as president. All right, let's turn to what we would currently call a transition. So had Lincoln already selected most of his cabinet by this time? Um, he, he was getting there, but not all of them. He had a big mess in Pennsylvania he had to sort out, which um, included two different bosses of, of the state, and they didn't like each other. But the man who had done a lot to deliver Pennsylvania into his column, which was crucial both for his nomination to be the candidate for the Republican Party and then for his election, was a guy named Simon Cameron. And one of the reasons Lincoln has to go to Harrisburg at the end of his trip is he's got to placate the two sides of Pennsylvania politics who, who hate each other. That's, they, they really don't like each other at all. The governor is a guy named Andrew Curtin who hates Simon Cameron. But Lincoln has decided that he's going to offer the Secretary of War, which is an incredibly important position, to Cameron. So he's got to go to Harrisburg to calm down Andrew Curtin, who hates Simon Cameron. Incredible. And in Washington, things were just frozen. And actually, Buchanan was considering recognizing the Confederacy. So how did Lincoln's speeches and his growth and building of public support affect what Buchanan was doing in Washington? Well, that's another kind of a miracle for which we should all be grateful. It's not simply that Lincoln made it. And I argue that, you know, where we usually begin this, the history of his presidency is the first day, his inauguration. I argue that, that it was a kind of a miracle that he made it to the first day. But um, it, it was really important that Buchanan, this pro-Southern president from the North, not recognize the Confederacy. Um, it was important for the winning of the Civil War that the South be regarded by Lincoln and by European powers as a kind of renegade group of rebels or traitors or anything short of a legitimate government. And fortunately, Buchanan stopped just short of that. And one reason I think is in December, in the middle of this transition, all of the financial corruption of the pro-Southern part of his cabinet was revealed and three of the, the Southern people in his cabinet resigned. And that suddenly tilted the balance of that cabinet to being pro-Northern. A really important guy at that moment is Edwin Stanton, who's uh, going to be Lincoln's secretary of war. He's attorney general under Stanton, I mean, under Buchanan. And he plays an important role holding it together until Lincoln can get there. Let's go to the most important plot in this book, which was about halfway along the way, Lincoln has a couple of people around him, one's named Pinkerton, and they have people that are kind of doing intelligence gathering around the country, and they uncover a plot in Baltimore to kill Lincoln. 
Tell us about that. So lots of people wanted to kill Lincoln. Um, there's, you can read Southern newspapers from the fall of 1860, the winter of 1861, and just a lot of people issuing taunts about violence to Lincoln or just, you know, threats like he will never make it to Washington. And a woman traveling through the South, very interesting woman named Dorothea Dix. She's from New England, but she's accepted in Southern states because she's done a lot of good work in them. She's a mental health advocate, and she's helped Northern and Southern states build hospitals for mentally handicapped people. And so she's, you know, she knows people in every state. And she gets to Washington at the end of 1860. She actually goes even further north to Philadelphia. And she, she finds the head of a railroad called the Philadelphia, Wilmington and Baltimore Railroad. And she goes to that executive and says, there is a serious plot to kill Abraham Lincoln when he comes over your train line into Washington, through Baltimore and into Washington. I have to tell you this. I, I know all the details. I know where they're going to try to do it. And that man named Samuel Felton wrote down a record of his conversation with her. And based on that conversation, he sent for a railroad detective, Alan Pinkerton, and they begin a kind of sting, a kind of Mission Impossible-like sting of the would-be assassins who are mainly in Baltimore, but also a little bit in northern Maryland along the train route. And they infiltrate. They act like Southerners, and they infiltrate the killers. They find out all the details, and they report back to Lincoln's entourage as Lincoln's en route on the train. So he's giving these beautiful speeches about democracy, but he's getting every night this intelligence that he may not make it to his capital. So it's an incredibly dramatic moment. And I didn't fully understand it when I started the book, but at the end, I was just like, wow, could could this have been any more dramatic for a president in transition with all of these hurdles he's got to get over, but he, he does it. Incredible. So he has this special train called the special and it's a presidential train, which he takes. And then he's in Harrisburg, I guess, having dinner with the governor at the governor's mansion. Um, and he slips out the back door. That's right. And what does he do from there? And how does he get to Washington and how did his change, how did his plans change? So only on the last day, they, dramatically changed his plan. And Pinkerton, with help from a couple railroad executives, arranged a secret train. So Lincoln goes out the back door in Harrisburg, like you said, and he put on a different kind of a hat and a different kind of a coat that he usually... Not a traditional top hat, I guess. Not a top hat, sort of a soft hat, it was described as. And a jacket that I believe looked like a, a Navy, what's called a pea jacket, those blue jackets that sailors wear. And so he was he was not in disguise, which is important to say because his critics later accused him of going in disguise, maybe as a woman or maybe as a Scottish person with a kilt. And he didn't, he didn't do that. But he, he dressed like an ordinary guy, basically. And he was later described as looking like a farmer by someone who saw him get off the train. And he went on a secret tiny train from Harrisburg to Philadelphia. And he got off that train in the middle of the night in Philadelphia and boarded the last train from Philadelphia to Washington that was going to go through Baltimore. 
So that was the train that would take him to, to the place, what, what was called the seat of danger by the reports from the spies saying, this is, this is where you have to be really careful. And he just sat there with um, three people. Alan Pinkerton was one. An old friend of his named Ward Lamon was another. And the female spy I mentioned, Kate Warney, who was incredibly brave throughout the story. And the four of them sat in an ordinary compartment on the late night train from Philadelphia through Baltimore to Washington. Kate Warney got off in Baltimore, but the others went all the way to the end. And he got off at dawn in Washington. And that's where um, an old friend uh, named Elihu Washburn was waiting for him and said he just looked like a well-to-do Illinois farmer sort of coming into Washington for the first time. And um, the simple act of his arriving made his presidency possible. And and you made the point in your book, which is a pretty strong statement, but you said that this is one of the most important events, this train trip and his sneaking into Washington, one of the most important events in all of American history, not just in Lincoln's presidency, not just compared to the Civil War, but in all of American history. So why do you say that? Well, I argue that for, I mean, the simple answer is if he doesn't make it, his presidency doesn't happen and the North probably loses the Civil War, in my opinion. But also these 13 days were so important for him developing that moral argument for America's greatness, that we're not just a large country and a powerful country, we are a great country for our moral standards, that we have dared to declare human rights for all people, not only in our country, but all people on earth. That That is claimed in the Declaration of Independence. And Lincoln is really remembering the Declaration and, and defending it with greater and greater eloquence on every day of this trip. And that culminates in his visit to Independence Hall where the declaration was signed uh, on the last full day of, of the trip. And he gives an incredible speech there talking about how he has never had a political sentiment that did not derive in some way from the Declaration of Independence. And the obvious implication is African-Americans are included. And in the fullness of time, women are included and immigrants are included. Everyone is included. And that is the core of Lincoln's message. And without him getting off the train, I don't think the North wins the Civil War. And then what does the 20th century look like? If, if America doesn't stand for human rights and democracy and the potential of women and the potential of all people from all racial and religious backgrounds to, to work out government together, what does the end of World War I look like? Would the, um, we, we tried for a League of Nations. We didn't succeed, but the, the effort was important. And then what does World War II look like when the, the defense of democracy was one of the major resources in, in the arsenal of democracy that Franklin Roosevelt uh, defined? And the UN, even with all of its flaws, borrows a lot of American idealism. And that idealism is still important maybe even more important in a world that has grown pretty cynical. Amazing. All right, here's my final question. What lessons from Lincoln's odyssey are applicable today? His unbelievable perseverance was really moving to me. He had every challenge in the book. 
he had physical exhaustion. He shook hands with you know, tens of thousands of people. He had some difficulty even managing his own family on, on this trip. He's got problems from his allies. His, his fellow Republicans are causing him pretty big headaches. And then he's got even bigger problems from the people who want to kill him or, or at least start a separate country without any interference from him. And he just persevered. He held on to this idea that was a abstract idea, and it was an idea that was falling apart at the time, which was that this is one country and it stands for a set of moral principles. And he just refused to let that idea die. Well, Ted Widmer, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. And thank you for writing just a wonderful book, one of the best books on Lincoln I've ever read. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. If you like Transition Lab, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.